Welcome. You're listening to WO Voices, a podcast series from Women in Optometry magazine. I'm Marjolyn Bailefeld, editor of Women in Optometry. We're delighted you could join us. Welcome. We're here today with Dr. Loretta Justin. She's a private practitioner in Orlando, Florida, the founder of Millennium Eye Center and CEO of You. Dr. Justin has been on the Women in Optometry advisory panel, and I appreciate the years of advice and insight that you gave us there. Today, we're going to talk about the challenges and joys of working with children with special needs. You have an interesting perspective as being a mom of such a child and of being a practitioner. So we really want to take a look at kind of both sides of that coin. Welcome, Dr. Justin. Thank you, Marjolyn. It's my pleasure to be here with you today, and I'm excited to talk about this. I'm so passionate about this subject. And you're right, I do have experience on both sides, and I feel privileged to be able to talk about that today. Great. So you have three sons. I do. I have a 15-year-old, a 13-year-old, and a 10-year-old. <laughs> That's a uh, very busy household. <laughs> <laughs> That's a handful, certainly. Yes. And so you have experience both in terms of getting kids ready for medical appointments, and obviously you have the experience um, as a practitioner. Let's start with you as a parent. As a parent, with uh, my children being diagnosed in the spectrum, it was very devastating for a family um, because 13 years ago, there wasn't a whole lot of information out there about autism. And we had a lot to learn and understand about this particular um, condition and what it does and the challenges that come with it. So it was difficult for us. It was a very long process. But in terms of getting ready for doctor's offices and getting ready for outings in general, what really helped us was a, a meeting I had with one of the resource coordinators we work with. And I was explaining to her our frustration. How do we get the kids ready? I don't really know what to do. I would tell them we have a doctor's appointment next week. And that wasn't working properly. That didn't seem to, they didn't seem to understand what I meant. I wasn't communicating properly. And she asked me a question. She said, if you had a child that was paralyzed from the waist down, what would you do? in your house. I thought about it and I said, well, I'd get a wheelchair and then I'd build ramps. And she said, exactly. You have to think of your children as needing accommodation. And up until that time, I was really trying hard to make my children conform to the world the way I thought they should, instead of me conforming or accommodating to their world. And that changed everything for us. It changed everything for me. I still remember until today, build ramps. So I had to learn that my kids in the spectrum, their language is visual. I was telling them where we were going, what day it was, but I was not giving them a visual. And that's when we began to learn about visual communication for children on the spectrum. So now 
when we go anywhere, we first put it in the calendar and um, we create what's called a social story. If it's a new place they're going to, if they go into uh, the eye doctor's office, which would be me, but if they go to another doctor's office, we would have a picture of the doctor and the social story, the steps that they would go through so they can visualize it before they go in. When they go into the office, they have their social story checklist with them and they can check each step as they go through. So that help reduce their anxiety and my anxiety. And that really changed our lives. So, you know, the way we prepare is make sure everything is written down, make sure they have a social story, make sure that they sleep really well the night before, make sure that they eat food that's not going to give them a bad reaction, um, that's not going to make them have any stomach aches or have any type of tantrums because they respond to food so much. And uh, to make sure that me... And my husband, that we ourselves make sure we're calm, relaxed, and ready. So those are the things that we do, getting them ready to go out and to communicate what's going to happen so their world doesn't fall apart. That's so important. And and how far ahead of time do you start? I mean, there must be too far as well. You know, you can't be talking about uh, um, Christmas today, I would think. <laughs> We try not to because if you put too much in front of them, they just remember everything. So we go a month at a time. We have a calendar in our house and the wall. It has a month on the calendar. So we write everything on the calendar. If it's really important for them, I make them write it on the calendar so they know that it's there. They look at the calendar every day. We have three, we have really three calendars. We have a visual calendar for the week that tells them what to do, what time they do homework, what time they go to the pool, what time they watch TV, and it's all visual. And then we have their daily calendar as well. So learning to organize our life and becoming very, um, very routine driven and narrowing our lives to hour per hour per hour has really helped us communicate with them and has reduced a lot of behavior problems we used to have. That's really interesting. So you've you've built these ramps at home, and I suspect at some point you must have said, I need ramps in the office. I mean, do Absolutely. When uh, I started re- getting patients that were in the spectrum, you know, when they would come in, it, it, immediately I would have an emotional reaction because it's so close to home for me. And my heart would just open up really wide as soon as I saw the patients come. And the biggest difference were the parents and the sense of relief they had when someone was not scared or intimidated of their children. Um, as a mom myself, you take your children are part of you. So when you go somewhere, the way people judge them is a reflection of you as well. So you feel judged the same way. It's my fault somehow. When your kids are received and treated the same way as the general population, it really, really is something very special and important for a parent with special needs kids because all we really want is for our kids to be treated normally. And so that was the first thing I started doing in my office is I would talk to the parents and I would tell them, 
that it's okay if he's screaming. It's all right. It's not going to interfere with what I'm doing. I just really want him to feel comfortable. If he's not willing to sit down on the chair, it's okay if he sits on you. I can use handheld tools and move around him or her to make her as comfortable as possible. So that really helped a lot because once I got the parent to calm down, it was a lot easier to work with the child. So for the children, um, I just really started using some of the tools I used at home. One are, for kids specifically on the spectrum, I realized giving them instructions verbally was not going to be the ideal way to do it. So I started giving them instruction visually and demonstrating what I was going to do. Demonstrating on on yourself or on an on an object? What what do you use? I would demonstrate on a parent. I would demonstrate a mom or dad and have a mom and dad do it uh, with me. If they had another sibling in the room, I would demonstrate it on their other sibling, especially if the sibling is neurotypical. It made it easier for them to be receptive to what I needed to do if they could see me do it with somebody else. If I had a video, I could pull it up on YouTube. I'd do it as well because as long as it's visual, it does communicate um, what we're going to do to them so they understand that way. The biggest thing was for me to relax and take it slow and be flexible in my expectations as to how they're going to respond. That's fascinating, and clearly your own experiences helped prepare you for this. But how do you prepare your staff? Because and and potentially even even your other patients, um, you know, are there um, guidelines? What do you recommend for even that entry point into a, a practice? When, when we know, if we know ahead of time that the patient that's coming is on the spectrum of, or I do see patients who have cerebral palsy, different type of disabilities as well, we schedule them as the first patient of the day. So that's usually the first thing, because I know having a lot of people in the waiting room might be overwhelming, and not just for them, but for the people in the, over, in the waiting room as well. So the first patient of the day or the session, either the first patient of the morning or the first patient in the afternoon, and we explain that to the parent. And they, they're usually very cooperative because they understand why. And when these patients come in, we don't have the parents wait and do paperwork. We take them immediately. They walk in. They literally just go inside because we want to make this process as seamless and as quick as possible for them and for their children. And for these patients, depending on the severity of their condition, I would not let my technician work with them. I would just start with them myself and go through the process. Um, Some of the patients having two different people work with them could really upset them. So it's easier for them to build rapport with one person and just have that one person see them through. So when the patient come, I'll do a quick assessment when they walk in and I'll tell my technician, it's okay. I'm taking him. I got them. I'll start with them, which is why it's best if they come first thing in the morning or first thing in the afternoon. 
And once they come in and they sit down, I sit and I just have a small conversation so I can assess where the child is and where the parents are so I know what I can and cannot do. I also do not... uh, I do not perform all the tests in one visit if I can't do it. So I don't have that expectation. My expectation is to assess the most important need that they have, whether it's visual or whatever the situation may be. I just want to be able to do one thing that day because I may not be able to flash the real bright light into their eyes if they're really, really sensitive. So I do a lot of assessment in my conversation with the parents. And then my observation with the child, I do always, always talk to the child first. And I sit, I, I, I shake their hand if they'll let me or I say, give me a high five. But I always want to make a connection with the child or the person um, with the disability first, because I want them to understand that I value them as a person. I want to make that connection as much as possible. And then I turn around and talk to the parent. Now, these parents must be, as you mentioned, so so grateful. What has this done to your practice? Is, is there a, um, a word-of-mouth network in the community of, of parents? Yes, it is. You know, it's a small community. Once um, you are in the community, everybody gets to know each other. And... What it's done, it has given me referrals, not just for the patients on special needs, but their entire family as well, because they are so touched by the reception that they that they receive, that they don't just bring their child, but they bring um, other people that they know. I have had a lot of patients who um, have come to my office because they work in a group home and they have brought the 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 kids or the adults the people in the home to my office for an exam and after being there experiencing it they've come themselves and brought their children and brought their family so it is a great way to create referral for your office and uh in terms of sort of um physical um requirements were there any adaptations that you needed to make to your physical space no, I didn't do any adaptations to my physical space. I am not a pediatric specialist. So I see these patients as they come in as a general practitioner. And if they need anything specialized, I do refer them to some of my colleagues who are specialists, either in VT or whatever they may need. However, uh, I do have an exam room that is accessible for people in wheelchair. And my pretest room is very accessible if I wanted to do an exam on there. I have a chart in the wall. So if the child really could not sit in the exam room because of those intimidating equipment in there, I would just bring them in the pretest room. We just get on the floor and I would do it like that. So I accommodate according to the need of the particular child. What about um, eyewear fitting tips? I can imagine that that process is a little bit uh, unusual. Challenging. Yeah. (laughs) It it is very challenging. Um, For a lot of the children, we use the sports goggles for them because it has the, the rubber attachment in the back that keeps the glasses on their face. 
And for these children, we do a lot of things, a lot of processes objectively, and we select for them. Measurements are done on them. I, I do a lot of these measurements on my on the children because I know I can get them to comply. Um, but we use spec we use sport goggles mostly for them because that's what worked with my son. It works so well. And it depends on the severity. There are a lot of the children who actually we do not recommend that they wear spectacles because it could be a danger to them because they don't quite understand how to use it or what's, uh, how to benefit from it. They wouldn't be able to do it. So for those children, I just explain it to their parents and they usually understand and we work them into the process of, of uh, adjusting and adapting to glasses. Sometimes they just wear it once a week, sometimes twice a week. So we got to create a schedule of how they can adapt to it depending on the severity of the visual need. But for eyewear selection, I do a lot of it objectively with the parent, depending on the child and the severity of their right. condition. Right. And is this a topic for, for staff training? Obviously, you learned because you, you had to. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and for my staff training, there is an organization in my town called UCF CARD, and they work with us um, personally, as a family, as a resource coordination, they do a training called sensitivity training. And they come to your office and explain to your team what the condition is, what they can, ex ex uh, what they can expect. It's similar to doing a sensitivity training for blind people. Uh, I used to work, I used to do a lot of low vision. So I've, I've worked with people in special needs forever, but uh, even before I had children. Um, but you know how sometimes someone meets someone who's blind and they start talking loud to them because for some reason they think if they talk louder, that's the person's going to understand what they say until they're trained to understand they're not deaf but blind. So it's kind of a similar training that my team receive first is their perception of the person of the child when they come to the office, how to change their perception and start seeing and stop seeing them from someone who's defected to seeing them as someone who's just different and how to cope with that and how to receive them from that perspective. So the sensitivity training worked right. really well. Right. One of the challenges I've had with kids in the special needs is they're very um, sensitive in terms of their senses. They get sensory overload really easy. And when my job is to shine a real bright light inside their eyes, that has been somewhat challenging because they always want to cover their eyes or close their eyes when I get close to them. And building the trust with them to allow me to do that has been probably my biggest challenge. And the way I overcome that is um, I may have to do it in multiple visits before I finally am able to see the retina. That has been a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so parents understand that because it, similar activities must happen with, with other providers that, it may not happen 
all at once. This isn't uh, this isn't a, a a visit that will be done in in forty minutes and you're you're done for the year. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Right. No, it's not. It may take a couple of visits, and you know, um, sometime financially you have to think about that too when you're seeing these patients. If you're seeing one patient three times and you spent 20 minutes, for example, each time, that's a whole hour time. And you got to think about the cost of operating your business is, are you, you know, how can that work for you? And that's an individual decision you have to make. A lot of these patients that I see as I do it as a way of giving back and I do not charge them for additional visits, but I could understand how that could certainly be an argument if you're having them come back multiple times. Yeah. I remembered when I was in um, in optometry school, I was in what we call rotations in one clinic. And there was this one young man, he was 19 years old. He came, he would come to the clinic every year and they could never get a refraction, uh, no, no refractive error, no retinoscopy, nothing. And so I didn't really know all his situation, but when the time came for someone to go see the patient, all of my classmates disappeared. So the chart fell on me. And so I said, okay, I'll I'll go see him. So when I walked in, I sat down. This patient had cerebral palsy and he was also developmentally delayed. And I sat down and I, and I looked at him and his head was down. So I got on my knees and I put my head all the way down so I could look in his eyes. And I said, hi, I'm Loretta. Can I check your eyes? And so that's how the conversation started. And when I came out, I had a refractive error for this patient. It was the first time in 19 years that wow. he was able to have glasses for his plus six prescription. <laughs> that he couldn't see the world. You can imagine if you're walking around like that, there's no target to look at. So it wasn't so much that he didn't want to look at people as much that he couldn't see anything. So that that really did impact me a lot, not knowing um, where my life was going to go. But that's an experience that I'll never forget. Right. And what a difference that must have made for him. I mean, in in just yeah. his his interactions with with people as as you say yeah the world opened up that's a that's a remarkable story dr justin these are heartwarming stories thank you so much for being part of our podcast series marjolyn thank you for having me it is my privilege to share i really love what i do and i love the fact that i can make a difference in other people's lives just like other people make a difference in my life. So that's why I do it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you join us again next time on WL Voices. If you'd like to be part of our podcast series, please contact us. You can email us at wovoicesonline at gmail.com or via our website, womeninoptometry.com, on Facebook at wlmagazine.com, or through Twitter or Instagram at WomenODs. See you next time.